0: Hello and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. This is episode 68, Is Francis Thompson, Jack the Ripper? A one-on-one conversation with Richard Patterson. I'm Jonathan Mangus, and Richard Patterson is a teacher and English literature scholar who is the author of a 1997 book that suggested Francis Thompson is Jack the Ripper, and he expanded on the Thompson Ripper theory in his novel, Francis Thompson and the Ripper Paradox. Now, prior to Richard's publication, Dr. Joseph Rupp, a Texas medical examiner, wrote a short article for the Criminologist magazine that came out in 1988 entitled, Was Francis Thompson Jack the Ripper? Which may have been the first to explore this possibility, but as I'm sure we'll hear shortly, it was not the first time that Thompson was mentioned in the context of the Whitechapel murders richard's new non-fiction book on francis thompson is ready and awaiting publication the first chapter is available online and he encourages ripper students to read and react to it i would like to thank richard patterson for being on the show today and welcome
1: hello there jonathan thank you for having me on your show
0: Thanks for being on. Now, you're in Australia in Mullumbimby, is that how you would pronounce it?
1: Yes, Mullumbimby, just outside Mullumbimby in northern New South Wales, up near the border of Queensland, near Byron Bay.
0: Okay, not too far from Brisbane.
1: Yeah, not too far, about an hour and a half. All
0: right. Now, it should be noted that Richard and I are not strangers to each other. As many of our listeners will know, he's been a contributor to the Casebook and Jack the Ripper Forum's message boards for several years. And so we've gotten to know each other through those Ripperology outlets, as well as in the numerous Facebook groups dedicated to discussion about the Whitechapel murders. So as a disclaimer of sorts, I'd like to say that we are friendly acquaintances, uh, at least in the cyber sphere. Now... That being said, I'm a skeptic when it comes to well-known personages being named as Jack the Ripper for mainly the following reason. Out of the half million people living in the East End of London in 1888, only a very small handful of those were well-known enough to have biographies written of them, and letters and manuscripts of theirs held on to for posterity— In order for later Ripper researchers to study these people and draw parallels with their lives and times with what very little is known of the Whitechapel murderer. So while today's podcast focuses on Francis Thompson's suspect candidacy for being Jack the Ripper, I will always be keeping in mind that as we hear about his no doubt very troubled life... There were, in addition to Francis Thompson, some 60,000 other East End residents living on the brink of starvation, crammed into shelters and lodging houses, suffering from addictions, diseases, and neglect, whose biographies we will never know. So the odds, in my opinion, are against a known personage like Thompson being Jack the Ripper. And now, Richard, your article in the most recent issue of Ripperologist number 146, you give a good and succinct overview of your case for Thompson as a likely suspect for being the Ripper. Could you start us off by giving our listeners a brief uh, biography of who Francis Thompson was?
1: Francis Thompson was an English poet, a mystic English poet. He was born in Preston in 1859 and he died in 1907 in London. He was buried at Kensal Green Cemetery. Um, He became a poet Uh, From the year 1888 onwards, he actually started as a journalist and his poetry gift was realised about two or three years later. Um, He was much more popular many years after he died. It wasn't until 1940 that he became um, very, very popular. Um, He was known to the literary elite at the time of his life, though, and he did study as a doctor. He He did study as a priest and he failed at both of those attempts before he headed to London in 1885 on November the 9th. He had a troublesome time in London. He, when he didn't head to London, it was all on, on aspirations to become a famous writer, but things fell through and he slowly drifted into destitution. Um, he'd already taken up a habit of laudanum opium that had been um, gifted to him by his mother when he had an infection when he was younger, and that became quite chronic, that addiction. Um, in 1988, he withdrew from the addiction, but it came back to him in about about two years later. He um, did try work um, several attempts at work at, at, at honest work, but they fell through too. Usually because he was fired from one position or he was moved off from the police from, from when he tried to sell newspapers or become a, a shoe shine boy. Um, so attempts to be legitimate never worked out for him, and um, he did attempt suicide in the early part of 1888. But he he claims to have been rescued by a ghost, and that's why the suicide fell through. And shortly after, perhaps even the next day, he found out he'd been published. And it was quite a meteorotic rise to fame from then on. He was quite a prolific writer, and he used many pseudonyms. And it wasn't until after he died that they realized how much he had actually written.
0: And um, you say that he was rescued, um, and this would have been by by the Maynells, correct?
1: That's right. The Maynells rescued him.
0: Briefly uh, explain to our listeners uh, who this couple was.
1: Wilfred and Alice Meanwell. They um, were um, very steeped in literature. Um, Alice Meanwell had connections. Her father knew um, Charles Dickens. They were, Charles Dickens was a family friend of T.J. Thompson. Alice Meanwell's father. Now T.J. Thompson, no relation to Francis Thompson. Wilfred Meanwell. He um, had become. He, he was quite a. Um, well set, gentlemen. He um, he had came from a family of wealth. They were Quakers, and then they became Catholic co- converts. Converts. Wilfred and Alice were both recent Catholic converts. They, that's what well, they were born. Francis Thompson was born Catholic, and um, Wilfred and Alice Mingle started a magazine called The Merry England. And the point of that was trying to um, bring happiness and literature back into the Catholic faith. And they focused mainly on um, on issues social issues. Um, such as um, help for the poor. Wilfred Meynell had experience working with the poor earlier, and um, he, he used to, uh, the idea was um, he had a soft spot for um, for the homeless people. Uh, so when he did um, discover the the submission and read Thompson's submission to him, he felt that he needed to help Thompson.
0: The Meynells essentially uh, helped Francis Thompson from the time um, in um, mid to late November 1888 up until his death in order to. To attempt to get him substance abuse help and psychiatric help, or you know things like that, to put him put him in a safer place. Is that correct?
1: That's correct. The help actually um, probably began um, before August Uh when Francis Thompson found that his work had been published. Um, he made contact with Wilfred Meadle, and Wilfred Meenl, um offered him paid him for for, the, for his work that had already been published. See, what happened, Francis Thompson, he he submitted some work to Wilfred Meenall's magazine. He hand-delivered it to the post box or to the letterbox at the front of the office, and um, that was a year um, before April. So that was 1887, early 1887. I think it was February, and um, so he hand-delivered it. Um, Wilfred Meenall put it in a pigeonhole and then left it. He just he had he he was dealing with many writers and he it was a full house with children and it was very messy. There were papers all over strewn all around the house. Or I from mean, put the um, submission, a parcel, a grimy looking parcel, in a pigeonhole and left it there for a year. Um, if He'd read the submission. Would, he would have read that Francis Thompson said, paraphrasing, "This is my last gasp. If you don't like it, throw it away, and um, that's the end of my life." Um, so Francis Thompson thought it had been um, rejected and um, thought that submission had been looked at and that Wilfred Meenl hadn't liked it, and Francis Thompson had given up hope that he'd be, pu- be published and um, drifted further into destitution, and, that, and that's what, what led to his suicide attempt. Um, in the meantime, well, a year later, when Wilfred Meenal opened up the package and saw some of the contents, he thought some of this had merit, and he couldn't track Francis Thompson down. He actually believed he was probably dead on the streets, so he thought he, he was a dead author, and he happened to have his words. Um, he published one of his poems um, called "The Passion of Mary," and it was through the publication of his poems that a family friend saw that and managed to get hold of Francis Thompson and said, "Hey, you're, you're in a magazine," and it began from it started from there. That's when it, that was in April, April and May that Francis Thompson realised he had been published, and then he contacted me in you know, another letter saying, um, "Well, I am alive and well, and um, I'd like to. I know you mean well. but I've seen my you know my poems published, and I'd like to." Um, get together with you and talk to you about that. And then and then he lost contact again, and Wilfred Meadle then tried to track him down a second time and eventually found him through a chemist.
0: Now, you believe that uh, Wilfred and Alice Mainel may have known and covered up Thompson being the perpetrator of the Whitechapel murders. Is all that we have from the Mainels regarding Francis Thompson from their son, or what kind of source material is available uh, firsthand from the manals that lead you to the belief have- that they might, might have suspected that he was the Whitechapel murderer?
1: Well, well the, there's, there's not much source material. We do only get it from The Sun. He, the Sun wrote um, the first, um, I, I guess, full biography on Francis Thompson. That came out in 1913, um, a few year, four years after Francis Thompson died. Or well, actually, 1907, maybe what's that? Uh, you had to do your maths eight years. He, a few years after the death of the um, first biography, from Everett Munnall came out. Everett middle wrote five um, um, editions of that biography, and he wrote until 1926 until the year he died. And each edition is, is slightly different from the previous edition, of course. And um, what you'll see is certain things are removed and certain words are changed. His father did work. Um, on the biography and whatever Ever Meanle wrote down, his father would correct and, and, and make alterations to and his son seemed to listen to what his father had to say on that. Um, Wilfred Rominald had a great fascination in the Jack the Ripper murders. Um, at the time of the murders, he knew the case fairly well. Um, he used to speak to um, people such as the Cardinal, the Catholic Cardinal on, on this subject. Um, so, he, and he, It was a long-held fascination. Um, so I, I've got a feeling, at this point, I, what, I've, what I've deducted in is that it was after Francis Thompson died and Wilfred Meadle went through Thompson's possessions that he to the conclusion that Francis Thompson may have been the Ripper. Um, but there were odd circumstances of control and, and conflict between Wilfred Meadle and Francis Thompson um, from the rescue until the time he died as well that indicates some sort of um, attempt to um, tailor his life or create a new image on what Francis Thompson was and, and bury the past.
0: And as you had said, uh, Wilfred Mainel, uh, you say that he was interested in the the Whitechapel murders. Um, And I've also read that he had some connection with the author, uh, the anonymous author of the Curse upon Miter Square, and then also with Belloc Lodes, the author of The Lodger. Could you uh, tell us a little bit about that?
1: Well, the publishing house that um, that the 1888 uh, Minor Square story came from was the same publishing house that Wilfred Meemul used at the time.
0: And do you suspect that the
1: publishing he... house that published?
0: Mm-hmm. Do you do you believe that he might have been the, the author of that?
1: Or um, I, I, I did suspect it, but I have reason to believe now the author was a, the son of a historian at the time. Um, the name doesn't come to mind, but um, uh, further research looks like the author of the Mighty Square was actually the, the, the son of a well-known um, medieval historian. So 1913 was when the logic came out by Bullock Lowndes. Now, um, the, the publishing house that Bullock Lowndes used was a, was a publishing house that Wilfred Meenall worked for about two or three years later. And this publishing house was on the same street, about two or three doors down from each other. and um, Publishing, Wilfred Meenall's, Mary England were, right, were, were on the same street. It was only about... A hop, skip and jump to it, and Wilfred Meynell did have connections with that publishing house. And it's interesting also that um, the complete works of Francis Thompson were um, said to be the um, counterpart of the man made whole by um, a daughter of, the, of Wilfred Meynell. So you have this the first full account of Francis Thompson, um, his essays and all his poems at that point, a three-volume work came out, including the fitness Connor at Opus, which is the, the murder story that Francis Thompson wrote, all came out at the same year that you have the Lowndes work come out. Also Wilfred Mainel was great friends of um Lowndes' brother, Hilaire Baloch. They um, had a joint in the States in Sussex.
0: Back to the uh, biography uh, of Thompson that was written by their son. And now he was the son was actually a child at the time of the, of the, eight of the, years the old. Sorry?
1: He was eight years old at the time. Of the Whitechapel murders. That's right.
0: Okay, and so um, clear this up for me. At what point do you think that the Mainels may have started to suspect that Thompson could have been Jack the Ripper?
1: When Francis Thompson died in 19 th- 1907, and Wilfred Meenl became the literary heir of Francis Thompson, he went through Francis Thompson's possessions to, get to pretty much start to archive it all. Francis Thompson didn't keep too much. He had a tin box, and in that tin box he had some newspaper cuttings. One of the newspaper cuttings was on the will of Maria Bloom. Now, this was big in the news in that year because Maria Bloom was a woman who was murdered for her money, and the murderer went to trial and he was found guilty. And um, he forged the will, so he and he, I think, believe he poisoned her. He forged the will, and um, what got him on the trial? And this is the first case where handwriting analysis was used as evidence in court, enough to make him to find this person guilty. And um, as you know, Jack the Ripper is not said to have sent letters to the press. That's where we get the name Jack the Ripper from. And uh, I believe it was when Wilfred Minnell thought to himself, why would Francis Thompson, the fascinated a poet, have a, a great interest in to, collect, to keep newspaper cuttings on a court trial to do his hand- handwriting, um, convicting someone. Thompson obviously was a writer and the, and, and the person who wrote The Dear Boss Letters wrote, and I believe it was, that was the point that he connected. Also, there were a few odd things that Francis Thompson also kept, including a toy theatre. It was a cardboard theatre, and what he'd found out was that Francis Thompson had replaced the strings of the marionettes from this cardboard theatre with the hair from Wilfred Maynall's daughters and had labelled those marionettes. And that was a bit peculiar as well, so I think I think at that point, Wilfred Mannell began to con- make connections to himself. He already knew quite a lot about the murders which had happened twenty years ago, and I think he then concluded that Francis Thompson may have been Jack the Ripper yeah,
0: because it should be noted that during the time when Francis Thompson was alive, he showed no violent tendencies. Uh, if I'm correct, and the Maynolds had no problem um, with Thompson interacting with their children, and they also, on top of having the young son at the time, they had an older daughter who was um, married, but I sus- assume you know younger, so they didn't have any any issues with Thompson, you know, uh, as- associating either with Alice or or with their daughter or anything like that during his lifetime, no suspicions um, while he was alive. It,
1: uh, it, it was not with the daughters, and he didn't show any violent tendencies to, um, th- th- at all. Um, he was um, said that he could not harm a fly, was what Alice Meenl, um said to describe Francis Thompson. The children despised him, though. The children um, um, went from levels of despising him to tolerating him. It, it, it was said in the biographies by the daughters that... Um, he, when he he wasn't the type of person when there was a knock on the door that they raced to the door to the see they pretty much kept clear of him. Alice Meenor, um pretty much um, was interested and she, uh, in Francis Thompson from the beginning and she seemed to be welcoming. But soon after they became friends. Soon after eighteen eighty eight, I, I forget exactly. I think it was eighteen eighty nine. I think it was when he returned from the from the priory in Storrington that there was a cooling off between. Francis Thompson and Alice Meadle, and Alice Meadle refused to associate with him and refused to communicate with him, even in the same house. Francis Thompson wrote letters imploring her to um, um, resume contact; he uh, almost love-like letters. Alice Meadle had a um, an affection of many men. Many men admired her, and Francis Thompson was one of them. Um, and he was very, very non, um, felt very rejected by Alice Meadle. And although they resumed a, a communication. Years later, it was only ever on a um, professional level. It's only her reviewing his work. There was none of there was no um, personal communication between either of them after that time.
0: Your contention that Francis Thompson is Jack the Ripper, or or that what you would call the insurmountable wealth of circumstantial evidence makes him not just another suspect, basically falls into the three car- criteria that you believe Francis Thompson fits: that he he had a hatred of prostitutes and prostitution. Uh, lived homeless in the east end of London during the time and was good with a surgeon's knife. So could you discuss his association with uh, prostitutes? And in particular, of course, the uh, one prostitute who seems to have had a relationship with him and then broke it off shortly before the Ripper murders started.
1: Yes, he um, he, he began a relationship with a Chelsea prostitute, a West End prostitute. Um, this happened... Um, between the time that before he submitted his works to Wilfred Maynall and a little bit afterwards. And he was with her for, on and off for about a year. They would meet up and she would take him to her lodgings. And um, from what I understand, uh, the manuscripts and the poems that he submitted were prepared at her place. And what happened was that it, he, it, to him it seemed like true love, from what I can see. And then when he found out that he'd been published, the poem The Passion of Mary... He returned to her and he said to her that he's now published. He was very excited to tell her, and her response was that she'd have to leave him. She said that she always knew he was a genius and she always knew he'd be published, Um, and then she vanished from that point onwards. Um, She she was never heard of again. Um, Her name still remains unknown. I I suspect that Frances Thompson reacted badly to the idea that all that time while she was um, encouraging him to write to different publishers, that she knew that when he would become published, popular, um, that she suspected that she would leave him. When he asked why she wanted to leave, she said, well, they wouldn't understand the relationship, you being a Catholic poet and me being a prostitute. Mm-hmm. And that relation ended in June of 1888. And he spent the rest of the year looking for her, returned to the streets. He refused um, offers of lodgings and housing by Wilfred Maynor. Maynor paid him money and he bought him a suit and, and had him fed and had him bathed in his house. And, but then he offers to actually... Have accommodation was rejected by Francis Thompson. He said that no, he needed to remain on the streets to find this prostitute.
0: Now, what in, in that um, case would have been his motive to to begin murdering prostitutes?
1: I think that the motive that he had in murdering the prostitutes was to to seek her out, to flush her out. I think primarily he he wanted to um, connect with with that type of person that he, he that they represented to, to him her. I think also he wanted to create a reign of terror so she would come to him. She wouldn't go to him, but if, she, if he made the streets unsafe enough, she might return to him because he might be a way uh, a way out of that um, lifestyle. I, I believe Francis Thompson felt that if he made the streets unsafe enough for her in the, with the fear that there was a maniac on the loose of a knife, that she would go back to him, that she'd seek him out because her only way out of her, her life... Her lifestyle would be through um, Francis Thompson, although there'd be that risk of humiliation or shame. That he was the one who obviously had contact. Now he was the one getting published, and I think he, he tried to engineer a situation on the streets. So she would she would be one of the many to, who would who would get flushed out, who would re- refrain from being become a prosti- from continuing prostitution and would go back to him. Also, I think he, in another subconscious level, he tried to find her in the women. <laughs>
0: Now, in the 1988 article by Dr. Rupp that I mentioned in my introduction, he bases his suspicions towards Francis Thompson on a 1968 biography of him by John Walsh called "Strange Heart, Strange Symphony." And in that article, that it was published in the Criminologist Magazine, he mentions <clears throat> that he mentions that this biography contains a footnote in which uh, the author John Walsh. Uh, indicates that his belief that Francis Thompson remained on the streets um, to in in an attempt to locate this Chelsea prostitute uh, as a cause-and-effect kind of thing because of the Ripper scare. He sought out the prostitute in an attempt to make her safe because he was concerned about her welfare, given the series of murders that were taking place in the East End. So not only that, but um, where, in, in which you have a different opinion on, obviously. But-
1: no, 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 because that, if, he, if, he'd been, if he'd spoken to Francis Thompson, I think he would have said the same thing, that before the Ripper, the streets weren't safe and she shouldn't have been a prostitute and she needed to be rescued. Um, so even though he may have, I believe, been Jack the Ripper, he, he, his counter um, belief would have been that he was trying to rescue her and, try, and was trying to make her safe. So it it actually, they're parallel um, concepts. They're not necessarily contradictory. Okay,
0: so in that case, it does somewhat represent what the domestic murder motive of Mary Kelly is in Ripperology, in which uh, the the Joseph Barnett theory, in some cases, is that he committed uh, the previous Whitechapel murders in order to scare Mary Kelly off the streets. Is that kind of a similar... Yes, yes. Okay. So back to the Dr. Rupp article. Your research comparing the, the 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 criminologist article written by Dr. Rupp and and your research, you seems you seem to have both expanded on what was known about Thompson's life um, ver- versus what was written about by Rupp in 1988 and also correct a few errors. Can you give us some examples of what's new and different from Dr. Rupp's article then to uh, your work on Thompson now?
1: Yeah. Well, Rupp's um, summary of Francis Thompson is interesting and, and I thought compelling. Um, but what I've expanded on that is that I can now place Francis Thompson in the East End in the parish of Spittersfield, um, also, what I can say is that he, it, he had a knife at the time. This is from Francis Thompson's own admission. So the update I have is that he had a knife and that he also was in the, it, it, at the location, as in that parish, also that he wrote about killing women in, the, in, in pretty much the same manner as Jack Ripper did. He wrote about killing women before the murders and after the murders. So I have a lot more. It's a book. But they're, they're the main points, I think that lifted that, that um, updates the theory and improves on it.
0: I believe also. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm I'm not an expert on Thompson, obviously. But uh, Reps' um, article mentions him working at a medical supply factory for only a week or two, whereas you have him in this position for several months. Uh, is that correct, or am I wrong in saying that?
1: Um, no, I have him for only a few weeks also. And if it's several months, it'd be a typo um, or mistake on my part. No, he it was only for about three weeks, I think, that he was working at the medical instrument factory in Manchester. And that was his last job.
0: And that and that's where you would have believed he would have acquired the weapons used um, to perpetrate the Whitechapel murders.
1: Well, although, I, uh, although um, it's an, an attractive image for me, I, I actually think that he would have re- retained that dissecting scalpel as a um, memento from his school days. So I have a feeling he would have had his own, he would have acquired one, perhaps purchased through his father um, or given to him um, during his time studying. And I think he would have kept that. I think he would have preferred to have kept a dissecting scalpel he would have been familiar with. Okay. Um, but he, he, I think it's just a, an interesting side that his last job was at a factory that would have um, made those things very available
0: in um the first biography of him written by manel the son where he relates the story of thompson admitting to have been carrying around this scalpel while he was homeless in the east end of london uh, using it as a uh, razor.
1: No, the the um, biography of um, Edward Middell doesn't mention the dissecting scalpel. The dissecting scalpel reference comes from a, another book called The Letters of Francis Thompson, also written by John Evangelist Walsh, who wrote the biography with a footnote. And it's the very first letter he wrote to Wilfred Nainal from the Priory in Storrington that he makes a request for a, a, a shaver. And he then says in that letter, before now I had to use a dissecting scalpel to shave. He says the reason he did that was because if he had a grew a beard, he would look like a criminal.
0: Now let's talk timelines and victims. Do you believe him to have committed all of the canonical five murders?
1: Yes, I believe he killed all the five. I also believe he killed Martha Tabram. That I I, I've only got um, some things that point to that as well. I've got a feeling Martha Tabram was one of the victims, and I believe he killed the other five as well, the chemical five.
0: Okay, but um, then believing in the suspect candidacy of Francis Thompson then forces one into a victim list that's going to exclude the murders post-Mary Kelly. So it, you would have to take out the assault on Annie Farmer, and then the murders of Rose Miley, Alice McKenzie and Francis Coles, correct? That's right. Because Thompson was taken off uh, taken out of the area shortly after the murder of Mary Kelly.
1: That's great. It was in the, um, mid-November that mid-November that he was placed into the um, sanitarium, into in to a ho- private hospital and he was there for 6 weeks and then there was a uh, about 3 or 4 days and from that that then he was shipped off to the Um, Priory in Sorrington in the new year. Um, So he couldn't have, although it's attractive again that for me, there's, I see a lot of um, connections between him and Francis Coles. Um, I don't believe he was in the area to have committed that crime at the time. He didn't return to London, I think for a year and a half.
0: You do suggest that as you alluded to earlier, that he may have been the author of the dear boss letter.
1: I, I, I suggest he should be um, seriously looked at as the author of The Dear Boss Letter, um, but as my book will show, it, it, it could not have been. Um, if you look at the contents of The Dear Boss Letter, there it, a number of things in The Dear Boss Letter um, would be personal to Francis Thompson. Um, the reference is they say I'm a doctor now. Um, Francis Thompson had studied as a doctor and failed, and, 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 and then you have the irony where he's a failed doctor on the streets, and now suddenly everyone's saying that the killer is a doctor. Um, also, the ha-ha, if you, on the Ripper letter, it's underlined, the words ha-ha, and it's used twice. Um, Francis Thompson's poem called The Night of the Witch Babies, which was submitted to Wilfred Maynall um, in, in February of 1887, that poem has the words ha-ha littered throughout it, and that's the poem about a lusty knight that wanders the streets at night hunting down women and disemboweling them with a knife. And um, there's quite a lot, I believe, um, such as a leather apron. It talks about leather apron in the Dear Boss letter. Um, when he says the joke about leather apron gave me real fits. And Francis Thompson had a leather apron at the time as well. He, um, As well as using the Providence Grown Night Refuge, he also was at the Salvation Army Refuge, which was in Limehouse. And um, Francis Thompson makes jokes about that, about he had, how, he had to, how the leather apron was all the fashion those days, is what he joked about. And then you got the Ripper joking about, about a leather apron as well. Um, but the thing is, all the references in the letter, which um, can, can you can almost see as a mini-biography of Francis Thompson's days, were things that Wilfred Maynor would have known. Wilfred Maynell, when he first published Thompson's works and um, had first met Francis Thompson, there was not a lot that he knew about his life. But what he would have known would have been his relationship with the prostitute, would have been perhaps the leather aprons, um, would have been the fact that he'd studied as a doctor. So the information that was contained in Dear Boswell and may have been been known already by Wilfred Mainel or other associates very close to Wilfred Mainel.
0: Also, is it not true that Francis Thompson wrote extensively of his experience as a homeless person in the East End of London, but those writings were destroyed after his death?
1: That's right. Well, actually, they were destroyed before his death um, as well. What happened was he, um, there was a relationship with a lady called um, Ka- Katie King, an um, up-and-coming writer who had also published in the Mary England. Her work was about the poor. She wrote very brutally and honestly about conditions of the poor so, and she used language which the poor would understand. And um, she was getting quite a, um, a reputation as a bit of a, I guess, a socialist, a bit of a radical um, in her work, and her mother disapproved. Her mother thought it wasn't quite becoming of a lady to write in such a manner. Um, Francis Thompson ha- um, had a immediate attraction to this woman and they associated with each other and he tried to woo her. But Wilfred Meenall stepped in, spoke to the mother and said, oh, you shouldn't have your daughter associate with Francis Thompson. He encouraged the mother to burn any letters that Francis Thompson had sent to Katie and um, encouraged Francis Thompson to burn Katie's letters as well. Um, Fra- Francis Thompson was very distraught um, with Wilfred Meenl's, um uh, interjection and um, control of the situation. And um, Wilfred Mendel said, well, perhaps what you might want to do is let to vent out your frustration by writing a memoir, like a De Quincey-type confession of your time on the streets. Francis Thompson spent a few months putting everything down on paper, handed it to Wilfred Mendel, who took it, and then threw it in the fire.
0: Okay, and you mentioned De Quincey. He was a huge fan of De Quincey, and um, some would say emulated a lot of Thomas De Quincey's writings. Uh, what do you say to the argument that the genre of decadent poetry that Thompson was uh, the author of did lift themes that were pretty common in uh, decadent and symbolist poetry of the late 19th century that may not have related directly to his life experience?
1: Um- Okay, well, um, Everett Meanle in his biography on Francis Thompson, he, said, he talks about this um, admiration of um, Francis Thompson to De Quincey. He says that um, De- Thompson saw De Quincey as an older brother. De Quincey died in Manchester in 1859, and Thompson moved to Manchester after being born in 1859 from Preston. Um, Alfred Meenl said, sorry, Everett Meenle said that um, what Francis Thompson did was take De Quincey's work and improve it by rights of succession. Um, so there was this parallel in writing style. And also De Quincey had this relationship with her prostitute when he went to London. Also De Quincey um, took um, uh, Laudanum as well as Francis Thompson. So there's a lot of parallels in their lives. Um, the, what I see, though, is when I've read the works of De Quincey, and De Quincey, of course, wrote about Whitechapel. He wrote about um, the um, McMahon murders um, in 1811, and he talks about those murders of the family there. Um, with the use of two instruments, one being a ripping hook. And um, so De Quincey had this idea, had, had wrote about murders, also had an interest in the East End and Whitechapel. Now, Francis Thompson, he wrote to Wilfred Meenall and he made two interesting claims about his work. And one claim he said was that um, my poetry is actually a diary. Um, it's based on real-life events. He said what I write is what happened to me. That's what he wrote to Wilfred Meenall. He also wrote to Wolfram Engel and said that when I write my things down, I'm writing a confessionary. It's a confessionary that's far more intimate than your sacred-dotal one, meaning what I'm writing is actually even more true than what you might even say to a priest. So Thompson did write fairly macabre things, but Thompson said this macabre stuff is based on real life.
0: And back to uh, placing Thompson at the actual murder scenes, do you happen to know how tall he was?
1: He was... He was um, – oh, I have to um, translate centimetres. Um, I'm 180 centimetres. I think he's about 175 centimetres. I think that makes him about five foot two inches. He, he was on the short stature. Um, I didn't get, I've never had an exact measurement of Francis Thompson. I do have a group photograph of him when he was in, at um, Owens College where he studied as a doctor. And you can see from that photo he's a little bit shorter than most people. Um, he walked with slumped shoulders, so he usually walked um, appeared shorter than he even was. Um, but he was shorter than the average person, and he was um, and um, thin, thin of arms and legs as well. So he was sh- he, he was a short person, but not profoundly short. Um, I think about maybe two or two inches shorter than, or three inches shorter than than the average person. But it'd be interesting to to get a line up with the other suspects. I'm interested to know, you know, obviously he's very. Um, we could actually find out exactly how tall he was.
0: Well, the the, uh, gentleman who is seen um, at the entrance to Church Passage with Catherine Eddowes was reportedly just uh, two or three inches taller than she was. She was five feet tall. So if Thompson was 5'2", 5'3", then that would fit. But there's a photograph of Thompson with a full beard, and it is said that that might have... Been a photograph that would have resembled what he looked like in the East End, whereas the the granted witness eyewitness descriptions, of course, in the Ripper case are kind of all over the place. But I don't recall off my top uh, off the top of my head any witness to identify a gentleman with a full beard and mustache. That's which which is go ahead.
1: Yeah, I, I, from what I'm looking at, um, at, at at trying to study that particular aspect, it seems to me that Francis Thompson, um, in August he tried to clean himself up. So by the end of August, if you'd met Francis Thompson on the street, he probably would have um, been cleanly shaven um, and looking quite dapper. Um, and but as the time passed, he would have he, he the whiskers grew and he allowed himself to grow a beard. Um, So it would have been um, a moustache and would have been a short crop beard or longish by November. So I believe, and that was, Francis Thompson was in the theatre and and enjoyed the theatre. He had that toy cardboard theatre. He was a um, child actor and uh, and he was interested in in that side of things, that sort of um, the dressing up side of things. And I've got a feeling that um, Francis Thompson, I believe, was clean shaven. He made himself as presentable as he he could under directions from, Wilford Mainel. And so in August, he would have been clean shaven. Um, and I believe that he grew a beard through the next few months. Um, when he was hospitalized, I think they would have shaved him again. And, um, and they wouldn't have, uh, and so he wouldn't have shaved himself during the hospital. And then I think when he was in the monastery, he would have allowed his beard to grow even further. And the full beard would have been on him by the time he returned to London um, in 1891. And, and I think that the that, that the fact that he went from clean shaven to whiskers and then beard slowly through those months is why we see conflicting statements on what on, on the on the beard or um, status of the of Jack Ripper from different eyewitnesses. And I think Francis Thompson would have uh, made use of that, as in he would have um, used that as an opportunity that conflicting statements to not be noticed.
0: Okay, and go along to the murder of Mary Jane Kelly. Um, the witness statements that we have available in that murder case uh do you believe that he he may have been Astrakhan man or uh, how, how in your mind um did yep. francis thompson involvement in that murder go down
1: i, I pretty much it's an, apart from the astrakhan which is the irony um francis thompson pretty much fits the description down to the gold chain um he would have um um, he the parcel. It says that that man carried a parcel. Francis Thompson carried a pas- parcel at the time. And um, they called it his fish basket. And um, pretty much it was um, a, a, um, straps which carried books, and but it was strapped up in a way where it almost looked like a basket. And he kept that on a on a on his on a like a leather strap. And and he carried that at the time. Um, so from the parcel, the gold chain, um, the the, the, the um, description of the whiskers. Um, Pretty much, I, I could like lo- I could bring it up on my computer. I could read out, at ma- show you the matches, um, but not the astracan. The astracan is, um, I understand, it's um, wool from um, the um, sheep's fetuses. Um, that's the material, and it's not something that he wore. But he did wear a long coat. He had a coat purchased in August with the with the money, and he kept um, um, this coat pretty much all his life. And he was known, probably known for the long coat that he wore even on the hottest days. Um, a dark brown coat. Um, so the, the, I, I see a lot of parallels between that that witness by Hutchinson um, and also um, Francis Thompson's description. I see several connections, but not the Astrakhan.
0: Okay, another one of the arguments that people will make against uh, Thompson being the Ripper is just his general overall health in the autumn of 1888, suggesting that the man was just not strong enough physically to have perpetrated the Whitechapel murders given the condition he was in when he showed up at the Mainel's house. Uh, would you uh, like to address uh, what you believe uh, his uh, physical abilities would have been at that time?
1: When he um, approached the Maynel's house, which is in, in April of 1888, he would have been quite poor condition. He would have had to have survived um, quite a lot of time on the streets But he also did have the lodgings for the prostitute to stay in. Um, Soon, soon after uh, meeting the Mayors, he began to attend dinners and he began to be fed by them and washed. New clothes given to him. Um, As a medical student, um, a major, uh, a high physical physique or high physique was um, a major requirement of being of the course. because study of anatomy and working with corpses was, and, and dealing with um, lifting and cutting was something he had to do every day. And because there's a, a lot of practical application of studies, they accentuated um, um, less bookwork and more actual practical in the in the um, mortuary study. And so you had to have a high physical strength to even be a doctor. And he managed to do that for six years. Um, he also um, his jobs were um, delivering books all around London. Um, he also um, did some work in, in the army, um, but he was said not to be fit from that due to uh, his chest, the size of his chest. But um, I've understood from reading biographies because he failed in drill. He just didn't want to do the drill that they had. Um, there is talk about him being exhausted and he was admitted to the sanitarium for exhaustion in mid-November of 1888. Um, but there's no account for what made him so exhausted because from pretty much April to November, he didn't have to um, beat for money. He didn't have to do anything for money. He was already getting paid for his work. I wonder what kept him so... What what kept him... What made him exhausted? You know, what made him plumb exhausted um, um, by, say, November the 15th that um, didn't make him exhausted beforehand? He survived winters on the streets of London, seemed to not have any um, problem. There was no um, account from him of him being hospitalised or him being too tired to survive on the streets. Yet when he's being well fed, when he's getting paid money, something happened that made him exhausted. Now, um, if you would spoke to Wilfred Maynall maybe at the time, and without any mention of Jeff Ripper, he would have said, "Oh, well, he's walking down the streets all night looking for his prostitute. Of course, he's going to get tired. He's constantly on the streets at night, walking, pacing the streets with his, you know." So I I, I find it strange that people do talk about him being exhausted because I think he was, but I don't think I don't see any other reason for it because he honestly was being fed now and he had money. Yet he managed to survive quite well on the streets for years before that. And he was strong enough to be a doctor, to study, you know, hard surgery study, working in the infirmary, which is a busy place for year after year after year after year.
0: Now, you had mentioned uh, him walking the streets all night um, looking for his uh, Chelsea prostitute. And back to that uh, 1968 biography of him by John Walsh, The author in the footnote um, on that section about um, his connection to the Jack the Ripper murders suggests that it's likely it's not out of the question that Francis Thompson would have been a known figure to the police, and he could have even been stopped and questioned um, about the uh, Whitechapel murders. Do, is it your opinion that, that that could have happened, that he did come under suspicion or he might have been stopped and questioned? Or are you under the impression that Thompson was the type of character who would have uh, easily slipped away undetected?
1: I think he would have been. I, I think both. I think he could have slipped away undetected. I think that he also could have been questioned. But if he, upon questioning, it would been very hard to, um, for a police officer to think he was guilty um, once Francis Thompson explained his circumstances. Major Henry Smith, um, in his memoirs, he discusses that um, a suspect in Rupert Street in Haymarket, and he said that he sent a couple of his men out to Rupert Street to speak to a suspect there. And the reason that person was, was suspected was that suspect was an ex-medical student. That suspect had, had a mental breakdown, so it was, on, was said to have an unsound mind, and that suspect was known to be passing off coins to prostitutes um, that were of the wrong value, that this suspect was polishing coins and and trying to um, pretty much cheat the prostitutes and tempt them into the dark shadows. So the police went to this suspect and they spoke to him and that suspect said something to the police and made them say that he had the alibi beyond the shadow of doubt and they left him alone. Now, Francis Thompson, and this this is what's contained and why it became a footnote in the biography, and John Evangelist Walsh read about the Ripper murders from Tom Cullen's book that came out in the same year that he was working on his biography, and that suspect... Um, happens to parallel Francis Thompson. Francis Thompson worked in Haymarket earlier. Francis Thompson was an ex-medical student. Francis Thompson had a mental, uh, mental breakdown in 1882. Francis Thompson has his own story about switching coins. He has a tale to tell on that himself um, where um, he picked up some coins in the rolled in the gutter that he thought were just um, farthings and then they turned out to be sovereigns. Um, so you've got a, Francis Thompson, a coin-switching story person, Ex medical student, a person with a mental breakdown history. And now, Rupert Street and Panton Street are essentially the same street. If you go to London today, you can walk from one street to the other in about, I've done it myself and I timed it. Um, it took about 36 seconds to get from one part of this, from where Francis Thompson's shop was, number 14 Panton Street, to get to Rupert Street. Um, they're different names, but they're just, um, the change of the intersection, is a little bit of a bend at the intersection. Um, and I believe John Evangelist Walsh said to himself, that's interesting, they have got Thompson at Rupert Street, the suspect at Panton Street, and that's what he regulated into a footnote when he discussed that the police may have questioned Francis Thompson, w- w- which is interesting. And uh, unfortunately, John Evangelist Walsh died this year. So I'll be speaking to him on the phone as well as I would be to Joseph Rupp. Um, now, Walsh found it very interesting, that the this, this similarity in suspects. But what is funny is he also says in his biography on Francis Thompson about Francis Thompson staying at Providence Row, But I believe John Evangelist Walsh, when he saw Providence Row as a place to stay, that he got a map out and he saw rightly enough that Providence Row was a street in the West End and thought, okay, well, that's interesting, but no connection in locality. But Providence Row, when it moved to um, the parish of Spittersfield retained the name. When the building was constructed, they called it Providence Row in homage of its old location. So I think um, John Evangelist Walsh would have been run a larger footnote because not only do you have this Haymarket connection, but then you have Providence Row which is, happens to be 80 metres away from where Mary Kelly was killed.
0: Right. To what extent have you eliminated the possibility that Francis Thompson might have been in an infirmary at the time of any of the murders or possibly in jail on other charges or anything like that? Have the records been scoured to the extent that you're satisfied that Francis Thompson was indeed wandering the streets on the nights in question
1: no i i haven't investigated this as fully as i should and um, i think it needs to be investigated um i've had people do this for me and and do research for, for me and they've come up with no results that show that he was either in prison um or they've been hospitalized at, or he was hospitalized i've done what i can do via the internet i've looked at police records via the internet but I don't think that's sufficient. I think someone really has to go to these places and go through their archives or go to the Q archives or wherever these things are stored Um, because, no, I don't think it's been fully investigated. Um, That's partly why I decided to make this world famous and bothered to tell people before the book was out so I could get a publishing contract, get the money they pay, you, spend the money in England and actually find this thing out and put this in the book because if I write this book and in the end we find out he was locked up in a hospital or prison all that time, well, I just have a very interesting story and I wouldn't mind that either.
0: Right. How explain to me? Um, you mentioned uh, um, the the fact that this uh, that your theory, after all these years, over this last week, has been hitting all of the newspapers. How explain to me, just as an aside, how that occurred? How did how did well, uh, suddenly Fra- Francis Thompson as Jack the Ripper become like a viral news story?
1: What I did was I contacted the Lancashire Evening Post. And there, uh, and that's a uh, British newspaper that covers the area where Francis Thompson was born. And I decided to contact his hometown, in a sense, and let them know. And what I let them know was um, new information, which is um, that I can now say he was in the East End, and that he said he ha- had a knife on him, well, a dissecting scalpel. Um, and I think that they, because it's a hometown person, I think they're interested. And because of this new information, I think they are interested. And once the Lancashire Evening Post. Brought put this out. It then got picked up by the um, BBC. I think it's called North Tower. It's a it's a news program. And the BBC brought out a news program. And then from there, it went to the Daily Mirror and carried on.
0: And, w- and uh, what was your reaction to that?
1: Um, my reaction was, um, oh well, um, I'm not not too startled, not too startled. I, 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 I to me, I've always thought it's you know as a story. It, lifts, it, it should at least, at least lift him up to some sort of prominence. I, uh, I see today, you know, um, there's, a web, there's a forum and when it has Francis Thompson that says not the most leakliest, likeliest of suspects, but at least he was frank. It's like people joke about it. And I'm thinking maybe I've got a very well perception of the world, but when you get a suspect that's there, you know, and he has a knife and he has this connection with prostitutes. He wrote about killing before and after. You think you'd think he'd be more than not the most likely suspects. And I think people just, I think people have been burnt in the past. I think, you know, after Walter Sickhead and William Gull and all the other famous suspects, people just train themselves and say no the moment there's it, a famous person because it could be someone who's, who's unknown. Like, as you said at the beginning of the show. It could be someone who might have lived a little bit closer. It might have had more than six years of surgery. It might have um, had an even darker relationship with a prostitute. That's always possible. I think it's just. I think people don't want to be fooled, so they instantly reject it. And I think what happened was that the Lancashire Evening Post were ignorant. They didn't know much about other suspects. They weren't used to the routine of just automatically rejecting something because they hadn't been um, fooled. So they didn't. They hadn't been burnt.
0: Now, now I'm wondering. Um, to your point there about. One, um, not uh, to your satisfaction having investigated the infirmary records or jail records or any uh, any um, or any or records that might be out there that could successfully eliminate Francis Thompson. I'm wondering also why in both your online postings and in your article in Ripperologist, and uh, just for our listeners, that's in the latest uh, issue of Ripperologist, number 146. To, you often seek to differentiate Francis Thompson from the suspect candidacy of Jacob Levy in particular. Maybe I'm just reading something into that, but I do see you arguing against the Jacob Levy more often than not. For, and for those of our listeners who aren't familiar with Jacob Levy, some theorists believe he may have been in the individual scene at the entrance to church passage with Catherine Edda's minutes before her death. Since the reluctant witness to that encounter, Joseph Levy was Jacob's cousin. And Jacob Levy was a butcher living in Middlesex Street, Allgate, who showed violent and criminal tendencies, was said to wander the streets at night, and this is uh, his wife had said that, spent time in asylums, he was schizophrenic, probably through heredity, and on top of that... Uh, was uh, suffering from syphilis. Um, But in your article in Ruperologist, you state that there's no evidence that Jacob Levy frequented prostitutes, uh, but he very likely contracted syphilis through prostitutes, I would think. And and Jacob Levy, uh, just to wrap him up, died in 1891, coincident with the end of the Whitechapel murder series. So there are many other points about Jacob Levy And he deserves his own podcast all on his own, in in my opinion. But the question is, given your arguments, and this is kind of hypothetical, if Francis Thompson proves one day not to have been capable of the Ripper murders, will that cause you to reevaluate your opinion of some other suspects, such as Jacob Levy? Or, you know, where would that leave you?
1: Um well, Jacob Levy, I think, is a strong suspect because he was, you know, he was there as well in its it sense. He was very close to the murders, um, and um, Francis Thompson just happened to be a little bit closer when it came to where, you know, actually where they resided. Um, and Jacob Levy was said to, you know, was his wife did say he did have a knife, was seen with a knife, and there is that syphilis connection. But the thing is, I, what I'm trying, what I've tried to do for twenty years, and it's been, I've been very careful about this, is. Not, not put my own opinion into things. You know, if you know he had syphilis, and then therefore it had to be a prostitute. We're leaping there. We're constantly putting a little sort of step in between with Jacob Levy. Um, um, I don't have to say I put a step in to say Francis Thompson didn't like prostitutes or you know associated with prostitutes because he said he did. Um, so all the other suspects are great, and um, there are experts who might have very good arguments for them. Um, but I'm not making a conclusion. I'm not. You know, I assume, as you said before, and I think it's very interesting how you said there were a lot of unknown people in the East End who may have have a better candidacy. We just, I have, unfortunately, don't know who their lives are. Um, And I think that's interesting because people are very, I think people are much more complicated than the couple of characters some people um, put the East Enders and the 19th century people into. I think they're, you know, we're talking about flesh and blood. I think there are lots and lots of layers. And I think um, you could, Levi could be explained in, in many different ways. Um, but I think it's very easy We've, there's enough movies out there where you've got a guy who's upset because he's got a disease and it's from a prostitute. there are so many stereotypes and I feel before we stereotype levy is simply just reacting to a symbolism therefore it had to be a prostitute you know it might not have been and we're filling in gaps where you know ourselves to do that and I think we have to be very wary when we start to um, put put what we think to be obvious associations
0: mm-hmm. you know
1: because the obvious association with Thompson is he was homeless so he must have been weak so he couldn't have done it now we make these um, we make these conclusions. He was famous, so he must not everyone would have known. You know, and people would bother to check that at the time. People thought he was dead, roughly. You know, he was and he was unknown during his life, pretty much. He was a virtual recluse. Only a few people went to his funeral. He wasn't famous until after he died. People just jumped to conclusions. I think we jumped to conclusions with Jacob. Now those conclusions. See, my, I've come to conclusions with Thompson, and then I find facts point me wrong. And every time the facts point me wrong, and I said those facts, I find a a, a more stronger fact. So I've been saying, let's not conclude that Jacob Levy got a disease from a prostitute and that's how he got the syphilis and it's because of a the prostitute. There might be a better reason they've got that disease and it might even point more strongly to him being the ripper. I just always worry about people who make the leap when it comes to historic figures or anyone, you know, me mm-hmm. down in the street. Because sometimes the truth can even be more compelling if we just say, hang on a sec, where are we assuming and where is the facts and where do the opinions begin?
0: So I'm wondering also, uh, and um, we, we are going to be close to wrapping this up here, Richard,
1: I've enjoyed speaking with you, Jonathan.
0: It's yeah, I, I, I quick- well, wait, wait, hold on. I still have one more question. Um, I'm wondering what your opinion of criminal profiling might be in um, serial killer profiling, because it's been brought up by supporters of Francis Thompson's suspect candidacy. Not you, I might add, but um, other people who uh, find Francis Thompson to be a very strong candidate, that he fits into a type of serial killer profile in that he was from a deeply religious background, a family full of sisters, very close to his mother, not close to his father. He becomes a drug addict, uh, seemingly fails at every job he tries. He, was, he tried to get into the army. He tried to enter the priesthood. He failed at medical school. Um, and then add to that, um, he wrote poems about hunting down and murdering women. So what we do see here is Thompson fitting a certain kind of quote unquote serial killer profile, but uh, at the same token, we should recognize that there's just one of many profiles that serial killers are supposed to fall into. Others being that he could be a quiet, unassuming family man, someone who creates an alternate, stable uh, public identity to mask his true serial-killing nature. And throughout history, some serial killers have been known to have been very close to their parents. Uh, so and, uh, so it's kind of like the opposite of Thompson in some cases. Some, some killers have been known to avoid drugs and alcohol. Uh, there's a serial predator, uh, sexual predator, multiple murderer up in Canada, Russell Williams, who is a highly decorated member of the Canadian Air Force. Um, Robert Hansen in the United States uh, in uh, Alaska was a police drill instructor. So fitting one serial killer into one profile is problematic, in my opinion, since we know that there are serial murders basically from every walk of life. So I'm wondering what your If you do view Thompson and his background um, as fitting into a certain kind of profile of serial killers, or do you dismiss uh, uh, profiling altogether?
1: Um, Well, yeah, very, very interesting. Um, Look, Francis Thompson, I think, think fits that orthodox profile. Um, You talk about, there's also the um, words, um, the triad where uh, people, you know, assume that a serial killer has a childhood of um, um, bed-wedding, I think it is. It's fire-starting also mutilation themes. I right. haven't got Francis Thompson when he's bed, but I definitely have him as a fire-starter. He started um, fires when young and big enough to get in the papers for that one. Um, he did like to take his sister's dolls and pull them apart and decapitate them look for their brains. Um, so I've got those themes in, in his life. Um, and But at the same time, I think I do agree that you can have a serial killer that has a perfectly calm childhood. Um, I think there's a great danger in just making assumptions in profile and, unfortunately, a profile is an assumption Um, and we always should know that that, that there's always the criminal that's going to think outside the box and there's always going to be this slippery element. As you said yourself, there are serial killers that have um, proven to be... um, before they're found to be serial killers and have done great work for their community. Um, And same as Francis Thompson, who happened to also be a Catholic poet who was quite well famous and quite, um, and people worship his writing. Um, So to me, um, when I hear about the person who has done great work for the community and therefore that seems to contradict contradict serial killers, it does, but it doesn't contradict Francis Thompson as a serial killer. But we also have to be, I think we have to be just as careful with profiling. I think people would be, wrong to not use profiling. I think profiling is a very good method, but it can't be the only method. We always have to assume that, this, that, that we follow. We've always got to think it could be the person we least suspect. It's, if someone's going to kill someone, I think that apart from being, being insane, they've also got to be someone who pretty much is confident they're going to get away with it and not be looked at. And um, so we've always got to suspect if we really want to catch someone, the people we don't suspect. And that's going to be people falling outside the profile. I think um, if Francis Thompson's found to be the Ripper, I think it's going to do a lot for understanding how we look at people um, in, when it comes to crimes. But at the same time, uh, if we get into that same sort of um, uh, an ideology and an orthodoxy, then we're going to be in just as much trouble as we are now.
0: Okay. Um, I think that just about does it. Now, Richard, um, what, uh, how is it going on the publication front for your book?
1: haven't heard a word, keep on getting newspaper articles. Um, I, I have written to a couple of um, agents, um, but the, all the websites say give us six weeks and get back to you. Um, I'd love to get a publisher. I've got this book almost done. I've got like two or three chapters I haven't written, but I'd like to consult before they're done because I want to have a good book. I want to answer questions such as you have asked about, you know, checking records and, and, and really get to bond with a lot more research. There's a lot more research I want to do and I'd like to return to England to do that. I'm hoping to get the book published by, by mid next year. That's, that's my goal.
0: And in the meantime, as I mentioned in my introduction, you you do post on the casebook.org website quite frequently when someone comes up and asks questions, Uh, and um and I believe you're you are on JTR forums as well. Um, That's right. And uh, of course, you have a Facebook group, Thompson Ripper. Yeah, it is
1: Thompson Ripper, so people can talk about Thompson Ripper group, Thompson Ripper group, and people they can join and they can ask questions about Francis Thompson, all Jack the Ripper, and it's just a place where I say he's a person of interest.
0: Right, and you do have a link to the first chapter of your book available, and uh, yeah. you have uploaded um, quite a number of documents. You have timelines, maps, the uh, Dr. Rupp article we've been discussing.
1: And, 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 uh, and Everett Meenl's biography of Francis Thompson is available all over the Internet, not just um, through me. Um, it's, it's out of copyright, I think, and anyone can just go and have a read of that, and it's a very interesting life of Francis Thompson there when you read it Um, I don't have any, unlike other people perhaps who have said they've got the secret thing under the table or they've got the DNA or they've got the hidden dagger or a photograph, I don't have any of that. Everything I'm telling people is in books before me. It's all in libraries. All this stuff is at your local library. You don't even have to buy my book to get to know this stuff. You just have to go and get to the library. It's all there.
0: Okay. Well, I want to thank you again, Richard, for being on the show today. And I, I do wish you all the luck in the world in getting that book published. I hope it's a success for you.
1: Thank you for giving me the privilege to be on your show. It's a wonderful show, and I and I, I feel very grateful that you've um allowed me to speak on it. Thank you very much.
0: Oh, absolutely, yes. Uh, thank thank you for coming on.
1: Yep, anytime. All um, right, call me back anytime.
0: All right, thanks, Richard. Thank and that was Rippercast episode sixty eight. Is Francis Thompson, Jack the Ripper, a one on one conversation with Richard Patterson? We are your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel Murders, sponsored by the website www.casebook.org. And we are also available in the iTunes Music Store in the podcast section. And I want to thank again Richard Patterson for being the guest today. You might have noticed, dear listeners, that we had a little bit of digi noise throughout that broadcast. Uh, this was RipperCast's first foray into the Land of Oz across the Pacific Ocean, so I don't know if that had anything to do with it. But the distance uh, Skype connection was a little hairy at times, but I uh, believe that it still made for a great show, and I do hope you enjoyed it. And I hope you will keep listening. We'll have more shows coming up, so stay tuned, and we'll see you next time.